Welcome to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast, where we support your quest for a happier, healthier, planet-friendly life that supports you, your family, and community. This show is produced by Go Green Locally Org, a Nevada 501c3 nonprofit whose mission is to provide information, resources, and support to live sustainably and support your path of green action to take better care of our people and planet. Before we get into other things, I wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you to our small but mighty community. Thank you for all of your efforts to help others and our environment. You really do make a difference. Did you know that batteries are considered hazardous waste and should not be disposed of with household waste? If you'd like to learn more about how to recycle and dispose of all kinds of household waste, then you'll appreciate Keep Truckee Meadows' beautiful new and improved online recycling guide. Next month, we look forward to an interview with Kim Rios, their community educator, who will be giving us more information about this new guide and some of the updates on recycling with waste management. And a big thank you to everyone who made KTMB's Truckee River Cleanup 2020 a success. 433 volunteers at 20 sites helped remove nearly 23 tons of trash and green waste and made our community an even more beautiful place to live. And now some news from Truckee Meadows Park Foundation. Nurturing plants and community at the Fall Plantamonium on the weekend of October 24th through 25th while maintaining safe social distancing, 60 community volunteers pulled on their gloves and participated in the 2020 Plantamonium at the proposed Nature Study Area on Pembroke Drive. With generous grant funding from REI, the Parks Foundation was able to purchase over 750 plants from the Washoe State Tree Nursery and Nevada Division of forestry. These dedicated park pals gathered safely across two days to plant local favorites like desert peach, prince plume, and a variety of native grasses. In upcoming events, if you are looking for your next volunteer opportunity, mark your calendar for KTMB's Christmas Tree Recycling December 26th through January 10th. Harvest NV is having a Facebook fundraiser at Harvest NV for the month of November, the top three highest donors will receive a gift basket of amazing local goodies. Tis the season to give a gift and get a gift. Details are on their Facebook fundraiser post. Today I'm speaking with Jesse Sprocket, the communications director of the Reno Generator, a community makerspace. She helps facilitate collaborative art and continuously building a stronger maker community. Today she's sharing with us about the new soon-to-be home of the Reno Generator. Welcome, Jesse. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit more about the Reno Generator for those who don't know what it is or have never gotten a chance to visit its previous location. Sure. The Generator is a large makerspace. Uh, our previous location was 35,000 square feet. The new site is 40,000 square feet. So it's, that's pretty big, if you don't know. Um, whatever. Sometimes I'm like not spatially as good. So it's a big space and it's full of um, hundreds of artists that come together to make different things uh, from sewing a costume to practicing for belly dancing to welding an art car um, or just making like a birdhouse for your backyard. Awesome. That's so cool. I, I, I had to say that I had a chance to, to visit some time back and I just think the whole concept is 
really cool because, you know, if you have all these people that have to have all of these very specialized tools, um, you know, you're talking about a lot of expense and, you know, just even being able to have, you know, the space to have all of that equipment in somebody's garage or workshop. So it's just really cool. Just the aspect of being able to share all of those things. So do you like, are you foreseeing kind of what your future policy will be? I know in the past it was like, if you kind of showed people that you know how to use the tools that you, know, you could, could come and use the tools and then like, there's kind of like a subscription basis. Do you guys have kind of a, a feel for what that will look like? Yeah, it's going to be pretty similar to how it was before. Um, if you want to become a member, you will, you will sign up, you'll go through orientation um, and then we'll kind of check you off on the different tools to see uh, if you are able to run them without training or if you do need some more formal training before you can do so safely. Um, and we're going to have different membership tiers, just like last time. So if you are low income, you can be a volunteer member and you can just have volunteer hours so you can still have access. Um, and then, you know, depending on how much space and time you need, like maybe you want to be a regular shop member and then you have 24 seven access with a key card. So that's $50 a month. Um, and then, you know, there, it's all different, all different levels. There's like an annual membership, there's family membership, there's a dis discount if you're a senior or if you're a healthcare worker or if you're a student. So we try to really make it accessible for all, um, and have it be sliding scale. Nice. Nice. And I, one of the things that I thought was so amazing is just the amazing amount of different types of projects you could potentially do. I mean, I think there was like a ceramics area and then like a sewing area and then I heard there was a 3D printer and then there was like every kind of woodworking tool and there was welding and like uh, aquaponics and just like kind of the sky's the limit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and we just want to expand that even more. Um, we have been running a, a public survey to kind of see what other things people are interested in. And uh, we got overwhelming feedback that people really want to learn glass blowing and jewelry making. So we will definitely be integrating those shops. Um, and yeah, we're just gonna, we're gonna keep growing. Uh, yeah, as you know, the more we fundraise, the more tools we can buy, the more equipment and machines and the more classes we can teach. So that's just the, we're going to do a really big fundraiser leading into the new building. So we can just, yeah, get, get new stuff, get blow, glass blowing equipment, get, you know, really nice um, benches for jewelry making and all the tools for jewelry making, you know, and, and, and at least kickstart um, the new space with a few new spots, a few new shops, as well as all the old too. As well as all too. One thing that um, I thought was really kind of cool is that you are including the aspect of being um, of having children being able to use the space too. And I, I don't remember, I don't think that was part of the last space, right? Yeah, we, we had so many like families of makers, myself included, that just were kind of, your kids were just there all the time because you were there, um, you know, and like they just are, were growing up beside us working. Um, and now we want to do it with more intention. We want to have this education coordinator, coordinator come in and do K through 12 programming um, and really teach these, these kids skills um, in a more formal way and have a designated classroom space, which is not something we had last time either. 
Excellent. Excellent. And so some of, um, what are some of the ways that you're kind of like including maybe some recycling or upcycling? Like I know um, I saw in the past that some of the projects were um, like there was, um, I think, um, like an old mobile home that was being, you know, upcycled to be something that was going to be used at Burning Man and some things like that. Can you share some other aspects of projects and things that you've seen and ways that people have inco- incorporated that? Yeah, um, I think there's been a lot of projects definitely with like old wood, Um, like a lot of things get made with old fence wood and old barn wood, like just any, any old wood we can salvage. We're all about that all the time. Um, And yeah, and, and I think like just resources in general, you know, like we had a person come through a while back who just had a lot of like 50 gallon drums, you know, and he didn't know where to put them. So we ended up integrating them in a bunch of different ways, you know, for things like catching rainwater or whatever, you know, like making planners, you know, all the things you can, you can do with those kinds of stuff. So we're always open to donations, but always please call first or email us first. Do not just come drop them up. But a lot of times we will take your stuff and use it to make art for sure. That's awesome. So can you share with us a little bit about like I went and saw or I saw on the website the project where you built a house that looks like it's on chicken legs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I just thought it was really cool. Sure. Yeah. So that's Bobby Agus house. Um, and I made that for Burning Man 2018 with uh, a crew, an amazing crew of, of local artists and tradespeople. And we actually, someone was getting rid of like two massive industrial pallets out on USA Parkway. And we were able to get those and use them to be the, the platform that holds the entire house. And that house is like complete, like from the ground to the peak of the roof, it's like 28 feet. Um, so it's like, I think it's 16 feet of house. And then the rest is metal chicken legs that it sits on. And that's out of that fly ranch right now um, for at least the next three or so years, three or four years. And you can go see it um, if you go on a tour with the friends of Black Rock High Rock. If you Google Fly Ranch Tour, um, it, it'll come up and you can uh, get tickets and go take a tour of the geyser and uh, the different art pieces that are out there. Nice. Yeah. And so um, if people want to participate in the kind of like the community, you're asking for feedback, where should they um, go to do that? Go to our website, therenogenerator.com. And right at the top, there's an announcement bar that says like public survey, we want to hear what you want. And you just click on that and it'll take you right to the survey. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. So what is the kind of the next step as this rolls out in in the building process? So yeah, so we will close in December, hopefully at the end of December, and then we'll start moving into the building in January, but we have to put in all the electrical and the rooms and everything. So we're thinking, I don't know maybe like late spring, early summer when the public can start coming in, maybe sooner. But we'll be doing like a a big fundraiser end of the year kind of campaign to start raising some funds so we can get new machinery. We really want to get like some upgraded like plasma table and different different things that'll be really cool going forward. So yeah, if people want to support and share that, that is amazing. Um, And then it'll just be more accessibility and tools for the future for everybody. Excellent. 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much for all the work you're doing and everything that's really going to make such a wonderful resource for the whole community. So thanks again to Jesse Sprocket with the Reno Generator. Now we're going to cut away to a presentation given by Carrie Jensen about river-friendly landscaping. If you have time, you can see the video of this presentation on the Northern Nevada Permaculture YouTube channel so you can also see her slides. This episode is longer than most of our others, but we thought going into our winter season that this is really good information for everyone to learn. So let's jump in. So my name is Carrie Jensen. I'm a local landscape architect and environmental educator, and I'm contracted with One Truckee River to provide adult education regarding issues around the river and landscaping. And in addition to that, I'm really pleased to be here tonight to present this because I really love the river. I grew up along the Truckee River and spent a lot of time fishing there with my dad. So it's a place that's very near and dear to my heart. And because of that, I'm very pleased to be here tonight to present to you about river-friendly landscaping, how your yard uh, and other practices that you do in it affect the Truckee River. And I'm representing One Truckee River, which is a partnership within our community that is trying to implement the One Truckee River or the Truckee River Management Plan. It started, hmm, oh, I don't even remember exactly the year. It's been a couple years back by Keep Truckee Meadows Beautiful and the Nevada Land Trust. They formed this port partnership with a different organizations in our community all to come together to start to address some of the issues in the river and to put together this management plan. They ratified this, the city of Reno, Sparks, and Washoe County all ratified that management plan in 2016. And there's over a hundred different stakeholders that are working towards getting the goals that are written to that management plan in place and implemented. And some of the objectives or goals of the plan that we're going to be talking about tonight are first trying to deliver the cleanest water possible into our storm drain system and also trying to foster a culture of stewardship. And you can help with both of those things today. And you guessed it, it's probably best that you can do or you can help with those things in your front yard and backyard. But before we go into the nitty-gritty of landscaping and how that all affects the river, I thought we'd take a step back and talk about why water matters. So if you look at this view of our planet, it's, ironically it's called planet earth, but from space in many locations or from different views it looks more like planet water. So you would think looking from space that this planet doesn't have any kind of issues with water. But the reality is that, I'm sure most of you know, that the majority of this water is salt water, 97%. Only 3% is fresh water. And of that fresh water, a great majority is captured in glaciers. And still another good chunk of it is underground in groundwater. Only a, less than 1% that's left over is available in our rivers and lakes. And it's easily accessible for us for drinking water. What is our local situation? Well, we live in the state of Nevada, and if you didn't already know, it is the driest state in the United States. And our local um, precipitation rates are average only around seven inches a year, and a lot of that is in snowfall here in the Truckee Meadows. So water obviously is a very big issue for us. Diving down a little bit deeper and looking at our actual watershed, the watershed is basically if you think about it, a bathtub, if you think of the rim of a bathtub is the ridge line, like on a mountain range, and then all of the water in that bathtub 
flows down and goes to a drain. And that's a very simple concept or overview of what a, a watershed is. But our watershed encompasses basically the area all the way from Lake Tahoe, starting up on the mountains where we have this great reservoir of water that we're so lucky to have because we live in the, the east side of the Sierras and have a rain shadow effect. We don't get a lot of precipitation on our side. And all of the snowfall that we get is majority in the mountains. And then it goes into Lake Tahoe, we get this reserve. It then flows down the Truckee River, which is our major drinking source in our area. And then it goes out to Pyramid Lake. So basically Lake Tahoe is that rim, and then it all flows down to the drain of the bathtub, which is Pyramid Lake. And the really important thing to remember about our watershed is that it's relatively small, and that gives it a higher potential for the buildup of pollutants because there, it doesn't get diluted. When you think about most watersheds in the world, they're very large and they eventually flow out to an ocean. And the ocean is a big body of water, or all of the oceans, that dilutes a lot of those pollutants. So compared to a large ocean, instead we have Pyramid Lake, which is a very small lake and eventually collects all those pollutants. So we have a greater potential for pollutants to build up in our watershed in it because it's a closed basin or endorheic basin. And within that watershed, we've had a lot of development. As you can see from this graphic, the areas that are colored in pink, and they kind of concentrate around the Truckee Meadows. That's where all of the development has happened in the last couple of decades, I'm sure. A lot of people are familiar with that. When I was little, I think McCarran Loop was kind of the like edge of town. That's the way I thought of it. And now obviously McCarran is not the edge of town. It goes much further. We have a lot more development. And with that comes a lot of concrete and pavement. And there's a fancy word for that called impermeable surfaces, which just means what it sounds like, that water can't penetrate down through it. So that increase in impermeable surfaces with all the development causes water to run off. So this graphic here, just to kind of help illustrate that fact. So on the left-hand side, we have a natural system where there's lots of vegetation. And when you have precipitation that comes down, a good majority of it is able to infiltrate down into the soil. And then an even greater amount is allowed to be used by the plants and vegetation and evapotranspirates up into the atmosphere. So very little of the water runs across the surface of the earth and out into waterways directly. It either sinks in and moves more underground in a natural system in groundwater. On the right, we have an urban system where we've got a lot of impermeable surfaces. And now in this situation, the water isn't able to infiltrate down into the soil because it's covered. And you also don't have as much vegetation, so you have less evapotranspiration happening up into the atmosphere. And thus a great majority of the water that flows or falls as precipitation just flows across the landscape. And when it flows across that landscape, it usually goes into things called storm drains. I'm sure most of you have seen these. They are kind of they get confused between the sewer, but it's where the raccoons live, those little you know, uh, drainage ways on the side of the street. And the important thing to remember is that they're actually two different systems, the sewer and the storm drain system. So if you go into your house and you flush the toilet or use the sink, all of the water from those houses goes into the sanitary sewer system. And that those pipes are piped out to a water, a storm water, excuse me, a sewer treatment plant, 
where the water is cleaned before it's then returned to the river. Conversely, the storm drain system is not connected to that. All of the water that flows on our streets goes down those storm drains, goes directly out to drainage ways, creeks, and eventually in our area goes to the Truckee River. The important difference there is the water from the sewer gets cleaned at a treatment plant, whereas the water in the storm drain system goes directly out to the waterways and it doesn't get cleaned. And many people kind of stop here and ask like, hold on, wait, why aren't these systems connected? Why can't we just put them together and send all the water to the treatment plant and clean it all? That would solve our problem, right? Well, the issue with that, it's been thought of. And actually a lot of engineers way back in older cities like New York and San Francisco, that's the way they set the systems up. So they put the sanitary sewer and the storm drains together and they sent it all to the treatment plant. The problem with that is that when there's a storm event where there's more water that flows into the treatment plant than the treatment plant can actually process, it causes things to back up. The water backs up. And now that water is not just fresh water, it's sewage, it's mixed. And so if it backs up, it can back up sewage into the streets and into your home. So for very obvious reasons, engineers were like, oh, shoot, there's a big problem with this connected system. So we're gonna separate them. So most modern cities have a sanitary sewer and a storm drain system that are not connected. And the other thing people like to point out or kind of have in their mind is that if they don't live near the river, they probably don't have to worry. Like, I don't live close to it, so I don't really affect it, right? Well, that's not right. If you think about it, if you live next to a storm drain, you live next to a creek. These gutters, I'll bite, it's, doesn't seem like a creek, but it's essentially a concrete creek. Every one of those uh, gutter systems that flows towards a storm drain is essentially a tributary or a very small creek that drains into the river. So if you live near a storm drain, which most people do in our area, then you do live ne next to a creek, essentially a concrete creek that flows to the river. So now that you understand that there are two systems, the sewer system and the storm drain system, and that all of the water from the storm drains goes out to the river and doesn't get cleaned, let's talk about some of the issues that are surrounded that, surrounding that. The first problem is a thing called stream incision. This is stream incision. <laughs> so if you think about it, you've got all this water and these impermeable surfaces, it's accumulating and it's flowing into those storm drains. It's a much larger volume of water than it would be in a natural system. And it's also moving a lot faster because it's going through pipes that are smooth. So you've got this high volume of fast moving water that flows out into drainage ways and creeks. And when it hits those natural systems and the banks, they can easily erode. And what happens is that over time they erode and they get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what an incised stream is. Just to further illustrate this, because this is a concept I don't think most people are very familiar with, we'll look at kind of a natural cross-section of what a stream or creek river should look like. There's going to be a low flow channel where the water is normally flowing. Sometimes that's one or even it can be braided stream where it's got several different channels, that's even better. And there will be floodplains. So when it you get a big storm event, you get water going up onto these floodplains. And that's great because then we get water up on these plains 
where there's a lot of riparian vegetation, which is just a fancy way of saying cottonwoods and willows and other plants that like to live near the water. Those plants are super important, especially in our environment in the desert, because they're kind of like an oasis where there's lots of cover and habitat value for all kinds of animals throughout the desert. And they really need that special niche environment where they can live. And we'll see what happens when we have too much water flowing in and incision. We end up with those stream or those banks getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And then the water is flowing down here at the bottom of the channel. And even when there's a storm event, the water can't get up onto the floodplain anymore. So that riparian vegetation is literally left high and dry and its roots can't even reach the groundwater anymore. My backup. This illustration doesn't show it, but if you can kind of think the groundwater level goes off um, below the ground here too. And if that's close enough, these plants up here can even access it by their roots. But then once you've got this inside stream, which hydrologists sometimes call urban stream syndrome, your trees can't access the water anymore. And just to kind of further illustrate so you can see this bank is starting to erode and the roots of this tree are starting to be left high and dry. And eventually you get dieback of these really important species that live in this zone that creates a lot of habitat for all of the animals that really need this, especially in the desert. So now that you've got a kind of basic concept of what the volume of water does, you can also talk about the pollutants that flow down those storm drains and affect the river. And a fancy word for it is non-point source pollution, which is quite a mouthful. It's a very technical term that comes from the Clean Water Act and regulators. So regulators like to make things a little more complicated, of course. And I think the best way to explain non-point source pollution is actually just take a step back and first explain what point source pollution is. So point source pollution is an easier concept. Let's take, for example, maybe you have a factory that's placed next to a river, which historically was very common because they use the rivers for navigation. So you'd have the factory next to the river. Maybe they have a manufacturing process that produces some sort of sludge or toxins. They don't want it anymore. The easiest thing to do is to just pipe it into the river and get rid of it. And then the Clean Water Act came along and they said, hey, they point at that pipe and say, no, we don't want pollution coming from that point anymore. And they were easy locations to regulate. And the Clean Water Act did a really good job of stopping point source pollution because it's coming from one point. They can regulate it and stop where it's coming from. Non-point source pollution, on the other hand, is pollution that's dispersed. It comes from many different locations throughout a community. And so it's really hard to regulate and try to stop it from getting into the water because it's coming from so many different places. So I'll run through a couple examples. And many of these you're probably familiar with. You just didn't know that they were called non-point source pollution. The first one that most people are really familiar with in our area is sediment. And people are familiar with this because of the Keep Tahoe Blue campaign. This is to try to keep sediments out of Lake Tahoe because it has historically been a very clear lake it's world renowned for its clarity. And as it's been developed or more development has occurred around the lake, we've gotten more and more sediments flowing in and it's compromised that clarity. So most people are really aware of this issue, at least at the lake. And you would think that dirt is 
It's a natural thing, right? Why would that be a pollutant? But this picture, which is not local, it's in Lake Tuscaloosa in Alabama, but I think it really well illustrates what too much dirt in the water can actually do, and it is a pollutant. It's going to compromise the clarity of the water really fast when there's too much of it. And not only does it affect Lake Tahoe, but the thing people don't really kind of take the next leap and remember that it also affects the entire watershed. So it's not just Lake Tahoe, but also the Truckee River and Pyramid Lake. Another non-point source pollutant is oil and also antifreeze and other chemicals that can come out of cars. Cars are usually driving around and parking on impermeable surfaces. And if any of their chemicals leak out, they go on the impermeable surface and can easily drain into the storm drain system. And of course it's dispersed because it's coming from so many different cars. You can't just stop it by saying like, stop that leak. It's coming from too many leaks to solve the problem. Another non-point source pollutant is uh, phosphates from car washing. If you wash your car on an impermeable surface and it goes into the storm drain, those phosphates will go out into the water, uh, waterways. And we'll talk a little bit later about what the effects of that are. Another non-point source pollutant that everybody I'm sure is really familiar with is litter and trash. And once again, this comes from so many different sources that it's not something that you can just point at one and go, oh, yep, we can stop that. So it's a really good example of non-point source pollution. Another classic one, dog waste. And once again, this is something that most people think, oh, well, it's, it's natural, so why is that a pollutant? But if you think about how many dogs there are out there, and especially in our desert environment, it does, their waste doesn't break down very quickly and it can stay on the surface and easily wash into either storm drains or if you're on a trail, it can wash into the drainage ways that are nearby. And this is a big problem because it can contain E. coli and other very harmful bacteria that can make us sick. We don't want those flowing into our store or into our drinking water source, which is the Truckee River. And because we're talking about gardening today, after all, <laughs> the non-point source pollutant that's of most concern for gardeners is going to be synthetic fertilizers because they contain nitrogen and phosphorus. And the thing about these are, sometimes you can have people who are a little overzealous with their gardening and they think, oh, you know, if I add more fertilizer to my lawn, it's gonna be the best in the neighborhood. It's gonna be so green. And so they add more than maybe the plants need. Then you turn on your sprinklers and if the fertilizers haven't been absorbed and used by the plants, they can easily dissolve into that irrigation water and run off into the curb and gutter system and down the storm drain. I'm sure everybody's seen this. What you don't notice is that there's chemicals. The fertilizers are dissolved in that water. And when they hit drainage ways, they can cause algae blooms. This is an example in our local area. We've got some algae and quite a bit of litter and trash. And that algae is a big problem when there's too much of it. It is a natural process and thing to have algae in your water, but they are photosynthesizing microorganisms. And when all of that fertilizer rushes in in one big slush, it's basically like Thanksgiving dinner for the algae. They're like, woohoo, I'm gonna eat, neat, neat, neat. <laughs> just like us and they eat until they're just so stuffed and they can't produce anymore. Then the real problem is that once they run out of food, they start to die off. When they die off, 
decomposition in the water causes or requires oxygen. So I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with composting. Like you got to stir your compost, get some oxygen in there. That decomposition really needs the oxygen. So when this process happens and the oxygen starts to be used in the decomposition of the algae, it sucks the oxygen out of the water. And then all of the other aquatic life that lives in that water and needs that oxygen can't survive anymore. And that's when you can get fish die off. They literally go belly up and start floating because they don't have enough oxygen to survive. Okay, so now we've gone through the bad stuff, <laughs> all the problems that occur from our separated storm drain system. We've got the influx of large volumes of water that are eroding our, our drainage ways and also all these pollutants that are flowing in. But enough with the doom and gloom because I'm sure everybody has had enough of that this year. There's just been too much. <laughs> so the nice thing about this issue that I like to emphasize for people is that it's one that you can actually take action on. It's not just some thing hanging out there that you can't do anything about. You can actually take action today to make a difference and we won't have these problems in the future. All about empowering people. <laughs> so what can you do? So the first solution that I like to recommend to people is to keep water on site. So you want to stop that flow, that huge volume of water that's going down the storm drains. So if we keep less water or keep more water on site and less flowing into the storm drains, that helps with our problem of incision and erosion on our banks. And the first way to keep water on site is to maintain your irrigation system. I'm sure everyone has seen this scenario probably on a daily basis. It's so ubiquitous. I think people just like close their eyes or don't notice it. But every time your irrigation system goes off, if it waters the sidewalks, it's gonna flow out into the storm drain system. And that's a big volume of water every day that's going out to the, the creeks and the streams and eventually to the river that shouldn't be going there. So maintaining your irrigation system is probably the most important thing that you can do. So don't just set it and forget it. Go look at it. <laughs> if you turn on your irrigation system and check, like where is the water flowing? Can you do things to change it so that it stays on site? Can you check for leaks? Big leaks are really one of those obvious things once it happens. But if you maintain your irrigation system, keep looking at it, you're going to less likely have those things occur and be able to keep more water on site. And sometimes people are a little intimidated by the irrigation systems. They don't know how to fix them, or maybe you've got ones that are spraying all over the place and you don't know how to adjust them to make it so that it will stay on site. So there's a program in our area called the Qualified Water Efficient Landscaper program. It's through the University of Nevada Cooperative Extension. And if you, um, you can find these professionals, I'll show you on their website. If you go to the Quell website and go under find a Quell Pro, everybody who has gone through that program and is certified and would like to be hired to be able to help you with your irrigation system should be on this list. You can find a pro to hire and get them out there. They can do an irrigation audit, check your system and fix it for efficiency. Another really simple thing you can do is just to follow Tamwa, our local water authorities watering recommendations. And the part about this I really like to emphasize to people is that it says, do not water between noon and 6 p.m. So if you do nothing else, just change your irrigation clocks or controllers to make sure they're not watering in the afternoons. And that's because probably most of you know, but in case you don't, it's windy here, especially in the afternoons. We get this thing called the Washoe Zephyr. 
And if you're spraying irrigation uh, water at those times, pretty much most of it is either going onto the sidewalk or it's being evaporated. So you're not really watering your, your plants very efficiently at that time of day. So if you can just switch it to the morning when it's less windy, probably gonna have less runoff of that water. Another thing you can consider is uh, there's a lot of updates in irrigation technology today. There are controllers that are either smart or weather-based or both. And they make it a lot easier to be able to control things and manipulate them simply from your smartphone. And also weather-based or sometimes called ET, evapotranspiration rate um, controllers also use local weather data. So they can uh, communicate with your local weather station, find out what the weather is today. And based on the information that you've given it about what kind of plants you have, it will apply the amount of water that those plants actually need. So it's really great at making your irrigation more efficient and I do want to note though that if you're going to use these, they're only as smart as the information you give them, of course. Just like any computer, they need good data in order to do a good job. So it really depends on setting them up properly from the start, making sure you've got the right data in there, that they know what kind of plants are organized in which hydrozones, so that they're applying the right information from the weather station to that zone. So if you're intimidated about how to program this controller, the best thing to do is to hire a Quell professional. They've been specifically trained on how to um, program smart and ET controllers. So if you need help with that, they're out there and can help you get it all set up and save water. And by saving water, you're also keeping more of it on your site. There's also a lot of new technology out there with regards to sprinklers. There's these guys called MP rotators by Hunter, there's lots of different brands, but the basic principle is that instead of spraying out a large volume of water, like you're familiar with most rotors or the, the old ones that used to do the and they just, they like send out so much water that the soil can't even infiltrate all that and you get a lot of runoff. These ones work at a much lower precipitation rate and they send out little gentle sprays so that the soil has more time to infiltrate the water. So it's a longer run time that it's out there working, but it has more absorption and less runoff. And of course, it's always gonna be more efficient if you can go to drip irrigation, just like it sounds like it drip, drip, drips instead of sprays. So you have a lower application rate and a much lower potential for water to run off your site if you're dripping water rather than spraying it. The one caveat I would add is that your drip systems operate at low pressure. So you need to be careful to make sure you have the right uh, pressure compensating for your system because if you have too much pressure, it can actually blow the joints. And I'm sure everybody's seen like spaghetti tubing that's popped because it had too much pressure and then you've got like a gusher. So just because you have drip doesn't instantaneously mean you couldn't have runoff any irrigation system needs to be maintained in order to keep the water on site. Okay, so now if you've taken the time to update all of your irrigation, make sure you're keeping it all on site. That's the first step, watering the right times of day. Then the next thing you could consider is this thing I call buffer planting. So if you're gonna have a lawn, if you can place it in a location so that you can have some sort of buffer between it and the sidewalk, that's always preferable because then when you turn on those 
sprinklers. You have this space in between where the water can infiltrate down into the soil before it hits the hard concrete and runs off down the storm drain system. And these can take many different forms. So here's one example with just some shrubs and some really simple uh, rock mulch. And another example, got some daffodils and some more gravel. They just pulled back and gave this space in between the lawn and the sidewalk. And here's another one. And I kind of like this example because they, they removed the lawn from the section in between the sidewalk and then they put in perennials. And this is a great opportunity. I know a lot of people in the group are probably interested in pollinator gardens. This is where I think is a great location. You can put in a pollinator garden and not only help all of, uh, with the issue of pollinators needing more plants that they can use for food sources, but you can also help with water quality because now the sprinklers that would go off on here have this buffer in between the um, lawn and the sidewalk. So you have less potential for runoff. And the other thing people can consider is not only just reducing your lawn and putting in a buffer zone, but you could get rid of it entirely. And a lot of people think about that and they think of xeroscaping. And I think what comes to most people's mind is rock and cactus. That's xeroscaping, right? <laughs> but in reality, xeroscaping just means being water efficient and using the least amount of water possible. And in places like Arizona, that might mean rocks and cactus, but it doesn't have to be that. In different environments, it could be applied in different ways. And I'll take a little side note here. I just want to get up on my soapbox and talk a little bit about rock mulch because I think this picture shows a lot of rock mulch. And from a water quality standpoint, I think there are some issues with using a lot of rock mulch, even though this landscape conserves a lot of water because it doesn't need uh, very much. There's only cactus and rock. But the issue with the rock is that one, that rocks, especially like river rock, have to come from somewhere, right? So not only do you have to think about your site, but you have to think about, are you impacting um, somewhere else off your site when you take resources from some other place to bring to your landscape? So like river rock, just like it sounds like, it's probably rock that came from a river. It was quarried from somewhere else. So I think people should be considerate about thinking about um, where those resources came from and how impactful they could have been and trying to limit them to the extent possible. The other thing about rock mulches, and I'm sure everybody's experienced this who's had a yard that has rock mulch, organics start to accumulate in it. You get the leaves and the dirt and everything else, and then you get weeds that are popping up. You can try weed fabric and whatever, but no matter what, you get weeds. And the thing is that most people don't want to go out there and like handpick every single weed and turn up every single rock and try to get all the weeds out of it. So reality with the maintenance of a yard that has a lot of rock mulch is that you end up using a lot of herbicide to deal with the weed issue. Those herbicides can then easily accumulate in the rock mulch and run off, go into the storm drain system and out into the river. So I'm not a huge fan of lots of rock mulch, not that you can't use it in the right application, but I do think there are impacts offsite and also that it has a higher potential for herbicide um, runoff into our waterways. So think about it carefully. Okay, so back to xeroscaping. Doesn't have to be just cactus and rock. In our area, if you were to apply that principle, it would look more something like this. 
If you use locally adapted plants that don't need an irrigation system, you're gonna end up with local natives. And I love this yard. And I know not everybody will, but I think it personally really represents our local ecosystem. And if you wanna show a little Nevada pride, why not celebrate it in your yard? We live in a beautiful place and there are a lot of beautiful plants that grow here that can survive without irrigation. So if you want to be able to zero scape, you can do it in our area and apply the principle of using no irrigation, but it is difficult and it will require using the native plants that are adapted to live here. If you don't quite wanna go that far, there are lots of other plants that are drought tolerant and even many natives that people might think of as more aesthetically pleasing than sagebrush and rabbit brush, even though I love them, maybe not everybody else does. So just to give kind of a splash, an idea, there's lots of penstemons that are native here. And you can also use things like sunflowers. And I could do a whole nother talk. We could go on and on about all the different plant choices that are drought tolerant or native that we can use in our area. But I just want people to kind of get the idea that you can use a plant choice to reduce your water use on site. And that will also help keep more water on site. And here's just an example of when you start mixing non-native and drought tolerant natives, what your zero scape landscape can look like. So it can give a more lush aesthetic if that's what you're going for, but still conserve a lot of water and keep it on site. Okay, so once you've done all of your irrigation updates and you've maybe adjusted some of your planting to keep water on site, next thing to do is to consider removing some of those impermeable surfaces free the soil <laughs> so the water can infiltrate down through it. And this is a picture of me at my old house. Uh, I got out of jackhammer and removed a bunch of concrete that didn't need to be there. If you're feeling really frustrated and you need a day of feeling really productive, this would be the way to do it. <laughs> um, but of course, use all the proper safety and all that, I'm not advocating for people to DIY this unless you feel comfortable, but just Think about where you have impermeable surfaces in your landscape, and if they're not needed, maybe you eliminate them. There's also lots of technologies out there for paved surfaces that now allow water to go through. So we had all the impermeable surfaces that didn't allow water to go through. The newer technologies are called permeable. And we've got this one here, it's called uh, grass pave. So it's basically a concrete grid system that then has spaces in between where you interplant lawn and the water can sink through. Uh, this, I don't think is the best solution in our area because I think in the desert, in order to keep this lawn alive in this kind of system would take watering like all day, every day. <laughs> um, so it's probably not the most applicable in the trekking meadows, but maybe up at the lake or somewhere where it's cooler. I just want people to know that it exists. Some more practical solutions, get it to switch. Um, there's this product called Gravel Pave. There's lots of different, this just happens to be one manufacturer, but the basic principle is they have systems that take gravel and help keep it in place. So the problem with like gravel driveways and paths is the gravel moves all around and it's not really a stable surface. So even though it's permeable, which is great, it's not really best suited for like walking across or if you want to uh, be able to go across on a wheelchair or stroller. It's just not really the best paved surface. So the solution that they've come up with is these kind of egg crate plastic grids that then you put the gravel into and it gives it enough stability to hold it all in place. 
and it actually can be ADA accessible. It can be used in public spaces. So now it's it's hard enough surface for people to be able to go across in wheelchairs and strollers and everything else. So I think it's a great solution and it's a little cheaper than some of the other impermeable or sorry, permeable paving systems. There's also permeable pavers. These are very similar to your concrete paver systems that people use in their driveways all the time. The real difference is that they are specially designed to have gaps in between the pavers. And there's also a layer of gravel and um, sand um, base underneath that uh, once the water goes down through these cracks, it then filters through. So it not only is permeable, but it also is kind of like a filtration system. So any pollutants and things that might be on your driveway, such as like an oil leak or other things, are going to go down through this system and clean the water before it goes to the groundwater. There's also pervious concrete, which I think is pretty fun. I love to take samples of this and show people and just pour the water and it goes straight through the concrete, just like the photo says or shows. <laughs> Photos don't talk, but <laughs> um, the difference between normal concrete and pervious concrete is really simple difference. It's just they take out the fines in the mixture. So if you have normal concrete, it's going to have your aggregate, your cement, and your fines. They just leave the fines out. It creates all these pore spaces, and the water can go straight through. And this is what it looks like. It's often used in parking lots, kind of has more of a popcorn-y look. And if you want to see a local example of this, you can go to the McKinley Arts Center. The city of Reno has a demonstration parking lot on the west side of the building between the Arts Center and the Keystone Bridge. It's really fun to take a water bottle with you and pour it on the pavement and see what happens. And spoiler alert, it disappears. It's pretty cool. Another strategy to think about for keeping water on site is looking at your downspouts. So where does the water come off of your roofs? And in general, it really is a good idea to pipe the water away from your foundation of your house. You don't, especially if you have clay soils, you don't want water accumulating there. The foundation where you can have shrink and swell of those soils that can then crack your foundation. So in its general principle, you do want to move the water away from your house. But if at all possible, you want to be able to keep it on site. So this person has taken the water and piped it out here and it's going straight out onto the sidewalk. If they had just cut this pipe back here and maybe put in like a little dry creek or a little area for the water to sink in here up above, then they'd be able to keep a little bit more water on site, still far enough away from their foundation, but not just sending it straight out onto the sidewalk. Another strategy for keeping water on site are rain barrels. I just like this example because it seems pretty practical. We don't get a ton of rain in our area, so you're not going to accumulate massive amounts in a rain barrel, but you could use it on a patio like this and then uh, use it to water patio plants in pots and stuff. It's always such a pain to irrigate those, so having ways like this to get a little bit of water to them is kind of fun. And just another local example. This homeowner uses the water from this just to occasionally water some of these drought tolerant plants on his side yard. And it used to be, or a lot of people kind of are confused on whether or not rain barrels are legal in Nevada because they used to not be. <laughs> it used to be that the anything, any precipitation that fell out of the sky belonged to the state unless you have water rights to it and you couldn't collect any kind of water on your site 
like with rain barrels or anything else. But I think it was about two years ago, they changed this and there's now an exception. You can capture rainwater on your site in rain barrels like this in small amounts to be able to use in your landscape. The important thing to remember is it's not for potable use, no drinking this water. It has to go into the landscape. Another strategy to think about are rain gardens. And I know that a lot of people in the group kind of sounded a little bit interested in this topic. The thing about them is they're really great for areas that have a lot of rain, like say Portland or Seattle. You take your storm drain or your storm, your gutter, oh, downspout, sorry, starting to flip things around in my mind. Uh, you take the water from your downspout, you pipe it out and you put it in this little depressed area and it can then filter down through the soil and stay on site. That's all great, except for that you have to put, well, you don't have to, but people like to put plants in that area so they can then use the water and it's more aesthetically pleasing. Trying to find plants in our area that like to be inundated where they have water all over their roots at certain times. And that's only gonna happen a couple times a year here. There's very few plants that can take that and then not have water for the other majority of the year. So, I mean, in a like natural setting, these are really kind of little wetlands and wetland plants like to stay wet all the time. So your rain or your amount of water coming from your roof is not gonna supply enough to keep them alive all year round. So the reality is you're gonna need to irrigate this area as well. So it can be done here though. It, I'm just not sure that they're the like best application, I think there's lower hanging fruit of other things you could consider before you do a rain garden here. But just to give you an example of what it can look like, once again, the city of Reno has a demonstration rain garden at the McKinley Arts Center. So you've got the roof, gutter, the downspout. What you can't really see is that from there, it goes underneath the sidewalk and it actually drains out into this garden area. And this is irrigated. Um, so, you do have to apply water throughout the year to keep all these plants alive, but they do use the water that comes off the roof and when they do get that. And this is what it looks like or looked like when it was under construction. So a picture from the city of Reno, just so you can kind of see that underneath those plants, there's all these different layers of uh, rock and sand um, that, for that infiltration and cleaning of the water. And this site is really cool because it's right next to the river. So I think it's a really great demonstration of instead of just piping that water straight out, it instead goes into this garden and then can infiltrate down through the soil and get cleaned into the groundwater and out to the river that way. So it is a good example of a rain garden and what it could look like in our area. What I think are probably more likely um, or more feasible solutions are dry creek beds because then you don't have to maintain plants within that zone where you're trying to infiltrate water, trying to keep things alive and irrigated all year round in small spots where you can take that downspout and put it into a dry creek bed. If you're not using tons of rock, but this is just like a little infiltration zone, I think those can be really applicable in our area. And here's just another example. I think this is nice because it's kind of in that zone like right next to the sidewalk. You want to capture the water and keep it on site. And they've just put a little depression in here. Instead of mounding up and letting the water drain off onto the sidewalk, they've just depressed it a little. 
So you get a little bit of retention on site and let it sink in. And here's across on the other side of the sidewalk, that strip in between the sidewalk and the street. Uh, we don't have a ton of these park strips in Reno, but when they do, it's this one's a nice example because once again, they made it a depression instead of a hill. So the water can um, infiltrate and sink in here instead of just running off straight into the gutter system. Okay, so now you should have all kinds of strategies for how to keep water on site. The other thing we wanna do is to reduce our pollutants. All those non-point source pollutants can keep them in, on our property and out of the water. And the first thing, some just maintenance things that are really easy to do is just to make sure you don't wash your car in the driveway. Those soaps often contain phosphate and so you don't want them to wash out into the water and contribute to algae blooms. Instead, if you take your car to a commercial car wash, commercial car washes are actually considered point source pollutant um, zones. So they are regulated and any of the water that flows down the drains at those goes to the sewer treatment plant where it's cleaned. So it is a simple and easy way to make sure that you're not contributing any kind of pollutants into our rivers just to take your car, car wash. If you can't do that and it's too expensive, you want to still wash it at home, the other thing you can consider is do you have a surface that's permeable? Do you have like a lawn or a gravel driveway where you could wash the car and let it sink down through the soil instead of going out to the storm drain system? You can also use um, non phosphate-free soaps. That can help as well. Another maintenance thing I like to mention to people, since a lot of people have spas and pools in our area, just to make sure that uh, since you have to maintain those and drain the water and clean it every once in a while, that large volume of water, it is actually legal to put that into the storm drain system, but you do need to treat it first because it is chlorinated water and should seem pretty obvious. Chlorine kills things. It keeps that water from growing any kind of bacteria and algae and things that you don't want in your spa, but you don't want to take those chlorine chemicals and put them out into the river because you don't want to kill all the aquatic life there. So if you're going to drain this water into the storm drain system, you first need to treat it to dechlorinate it. And so if you go to a local spa um, and pool supply place, they can provide you with the proper chemicals to dechlorinate it first. Then you can legally put it into the storm drain system. And even better is if you can drain it somewhere on site. Once again, if you have a lawn or a permeable driveway that you could uh, release this water so that it stays on site, that's even better. We talked a lot about sediments and how they're a pollutant of concern in our watershed. So the easiest way to help with the sediment problem is just to cover our soil. Use mulches so that we don't get as much sediment eroding. And DG, I know a lot of people love the aesthetic of DG and it can be a more economical uh, ground cover choice, but the problem with it is it erodes really easily. So I would say use it sparingly and make sure you don't use it on slopes or adjacent to hard surfaces like sidewalks. This is just a classic example, but I'm sure everyone's seen it in our area where it erodes off and then it goes out into the storm drain system and that sediments that get added to our river. You can also help keep sediments out of the river by making sure if you live on a slope that it's planted, all the roots from all those plants help hold that soil in place, have less erosion. 
There's also the drip line around houses are very susceptible to erosion, especially in older homes in the Reno area that don't even have a um, gutter and downspout system. They may just have the water come straight off the drip line and then you get that backsplash of like dirt that flies up on the side of your house and all the that sediment is when, once it's loose it has more potential to end up flowing off site. So just protecting that zone if you can with a little bit of gravel can help make sure that you're not getting erosion from those zones. Also rain chains are kind of a fun thing. They dissipate the energy of water coming down off of a downspout. Um, and then if it has less energy, it has less potential to erode when it hits. So, plus they're just kind of fun. The other thing to think about with sediments, uh, the greatest potential for sediments to go off your site is when you're moving dirt around. And so if you're doing any kind of construction, and you need to be aware that that's a big potential for pollutants going into the rivers, any potential sediments that could flow off. So we need to be really careful about controlling sediments during construction. And I know most homeowners aren't gonna get out these big Tonka toys and start moving around <laughs> big earthworks like this photo shows. But I just want people to be aware that if you hire a contractor, they need to be thinking about keeping sediments on site and they should have a SWIP, a stormwater pollution prevention plan that involves best management practices like these wattles are one strategy for keeping sediments on site. They work like a little filter. So if it rains while this site is under construction, that water goes down, the water can flow through the wattle because it's just filled with straw, but that straw helps filter and keep all the sediments on site. And there's lots of other strategies as well, but during construction, you need to think about keeping sediments on site. The other pollutant of concern that gardeners really need to think about is the use of synthetic fertilizers. And I'm not picking on miracle Grow here. I know there are lots of different companies out there that make synthetic fertilizers. I just think this is the one people most instantly think of. And when you use them, if you're going to, the most important thing to do is just to make sure you follow the instructions. More doesn't always better, despite what people may think. It, the plants can only use so much, so if you follow the recommendations on the back of the box, that can help. The other thing you want to consider is testing your soil so that you have a better idea of what do you actually need? What kind of fertilizer should you be using that are appropriate for your landscape rather than just throwing a ton of fertilizer out there not knowing if it's going to be used. Oops. Sorry, there's kind of a delay on the switching to next. Okay. So, and the next best thing you can do is consider using organics like compost. And I'm sure most people in the permaculture group are really familiar with composting. So this is preaching to the choir. But um, if you compost on site, you get compost and you can use that as fertilizer that's obviously gonna have a lower nitrogen and uh, phosphorus content. Uh, it's gonna release it much slower and you're gonna have less potential for polluting waterways with that. The other thing to consider is that in the summertime in the trucking meadows, about 50% of landfill or things that we send to the landfill are either yard waste or food scraps. So not only if you compost, you're not only going to be able to help with our water quality issue, you also help with 
the environmental issue of sending so much to the landfill. So it's kind of double dipping there. The other thing you can consider to reduce your fertilizer needs if you have a lawn is to try a strategy called grass cycling. And this just means that you mow your lawn at a certain time so that the clippings are small and they basically can just fall down. You take the bag off and you let them fall down and stay in place. So it's like really lazy composting. You basically just leave the grass clippings. And as long as they're small enough, they don't suffocate or cover the lawn, they just compost in place. So less work and less need for fertilizer down the road. The other pollutant I like to point out to gardeners is the use of pesticides. And this graphic is not a local company, <laughs> but I think it kind of illustrates really well that a lot of pest control companies use chemicals that are broad spectrum, where it doesn't just target one species, it can kill lots of different species. Hence the lots of dead bugs on the bottom here. And it not only is gonna target the thing that you don't want, like maybe you have too many or a bunch of ants in getting into your kitchen. And so you had sprayed all around your back or around your house to get rid of the ants. But those chemicals can affect other things as well, including our pollinators, like this honeybee here. And I'm sure everybody's heard a lot about pollinators in the news and how insect populations in general, um, a lot of scientists are concerned that they might be in decline across the whole planet. And we should be really thinking about how we can help support these populations. They help pollinate our, um, our plants, which then produce our food. So you, it's a really important thing to consider is that we don't wanna affect them with pesticide use. And there's also other examples like monarch butterflies. I'm sure everybody's familiar with this one and that they're in decline. Pesticides can affect them as well. And then my other favorite that most people don't think about is the mayfly. And I've got the little nymph over here, which is the baby that lives in the water. And you can always tell it's a mayfly if it has the three tails that looks like an M for mayfly. When they come out as adults, they look like this. They're really important aquatic species and they're often thought of as kind of an indicator of aquatic health because they're at the bottom of the food chain. So if you're looking around in a river and you can't find these, that's not a good sign. And scientists have found that their populations are in decline as well. So I think people think about the, the bees and the butterflies, but you also need to consider the aquatic insects and how important they are for our riverine systems. And if you use pesticides that wash down the storm drain, they can affect them as well. So the solution to that one is to make sure that you're using integrated pest management and the graphic here just illustrates that there's different levels. The important part to remember is that when dealing with a pest, the very last resort always should be only using a chemical when there's no other way to control them. So it's your last resort. You don't go to the bottle of chemical first, it's after you've tried everything else. So if you have questions about integrated pest management, the Nevada Cooperative Extension has a integrated pest management program educator named Kevin Burles, who if you haven't met is just an amazing human being and he'll teach you all about insects, particularly butterflies. Um, and he can help you determine what bug you're dealing with and how to best uh, control it and ideally not with a chemical. So reach out to him if you have questions. With that. 
Okay, so I just wanted to leave you with one last inspirational photo of a yard I think kind of uh, does a good job of representing what a river friendly landscape can look like. It uses mulches to um, keep the soil in place and avoid erosion and sediments from going off site. They're using drought tolerant and native plants. They have local river rock, but not too much rock. Uh, they use drip irrigation system to keep water on site. And they also, you can't see in this photo, but they had a, a very large driveway. They actually removed part of that to take away some of the impermeable surfaces. So they're doing a lot of the right things to keep water on site and keep pollutants out of our river, which was what I was gonna summarize at the end here is just that you need to remember the solutions. And that is to make sure that we're keeping all of our water on site to the extent possible, and that we're reducing those non-point source pollutants from going out into our waterways. And finally, just a disclaimer to let you know that this is general information for education only. Of course, I can't know each situation that each person that listens to this talk could be, have on their own property. So this is just general information and you need to make sure that you then take it and follow all your local codes and ordinances. And if you need help, consult with licensed professionals. And can end it with questions, but I just wanna make three quick little things um, since I've got funding from One Truckee River, I would just encourage everybody, if you're interested in issues around the river and keeping engaged and finding out what's happening with the Truckee River to follow them on social media. They have all of them as shown at the bottom here. So you can follow them and keep up to date. Uh, if you know of anybody who would like to hear this talk, I do have grant funding to do free presentations throughout our community through next June. So if you know of some group in your community that you think would like to hear this talk, just let me know. And also for your group in particular, because I know the permaculture group, this is kind of like speaking to the choir. I'm sure a lot of the group already knows a lot of the principles that I talked about tonight, but if there are any that you guys want to dive into a little deeper, like if there's a work bee you guys want to do, if somebody's got a property and they want to remove a part of a lawn and put in a little rain garden or um, install some rain barrels or do something of that nature, I'm totally like game to um, help with that or do another talk on topics that are more in depth on any of these issues. So just wanted to throw that out there and my contact information is up here. So if you guys have any questions in the future or anytime, just contact me and I'd be happy to, to learn together. Great, well, thank you so much, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast. Please take good care of you and yours. Stay well and help us all make this a kinder, healthier, and greener community for all.